0: Welcome to the Insurgents Podcast with Frank Viola. And he's brought a friend. This is the podcast that supplements Frank's groundbreaking book, Insurgents, Reclaiming the Gospel of the Kingdom, which is shaking up the Christian world. You can find out details about the book at insurgents.org. Sit back, open all four ears, physical and spiritual, and join the Insurgents. Here's Frank. Welcome to another edition of the Insurgents Podcast. Today's episode will feature a message on the gospel of the kingdom that I brought at a conference in the summer of 2017, one year before the book Insurgents Reclaiming the Gospel of the Kingdom released. It was the last message in the conference, number eight out of eight talks. I hope you enjoy the message, and I want to encourage you to go back and listen to all the previous episodes, which expand many of the threads that I pull out in this message. The episode before this, number 73, on nationalism and globalism, has struck a chord with many Christians. It's also drawn its share of venom as well. So if you're new to the podcast you'll want to listen to episode 73 as well. Enjoy the message. I want to remind you that when I am finished speaking tonight, you will have heard one-fifth of what's on my heart. And you will hear the rest of my burden in the master class. The messages that I brought in Alabama in March on the kingdom, it's different content and I actually get a lot more practical in some areas that we touched on. I want to talk to you about Paul Tarsus and his gospel according to the kingdom. We should say the gospel of the kingdom according to Paul of Tarsus. And so we're going to read the uh, set of passages on the second column on your sheet. So why don't we do that? And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day But I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Now, I want you to notice something interesting. Paul equates the kingdom, the preaching of the kingdom, with the whole counsel of God. And as I said before, the eternal purpose and the kingdom of God are really synonyms in many ways. Interesting too, he said that he preached to them the whole counsel of God. He's talking to the believers in Ephesus and according to the scripture, Paul was in Ephesus for a number of years and he spoke every day in the hall of Tyrannus for two years. And according to one manuscript, he spoke from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Five hours a day for two years. That brother was very clear on the kingdom of God. All right? I don't think I can speak on the kingdom of God for two years, five hours a day. I may get away with doing that for maybe three months, possibly. But it goes to show you that, number one, the kingdom of God is the central message of the New Testament, number one. And number two, it shows you how vast it is. The whole counsel of God. Also explains a little bit why Jesus could spend 40 days on the earth after his resurrection and talk about the kingdom. All right, so let's look at the next passage. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority. Now here's, here's the part that I want you to really zero in on. That we may lead a quiet or simple and peaceful life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. And then there is this passage I really love, Ephesians Ephesians 4.28 Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands that they may be able to buy an expensive automobile. (laughs) Or, Or that they may be able to gain lots of money. Or that they may be able to live in luxury. No, listen to the verse. They must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. That is a revolutionary statement. I call it the Christian work ethic. The Christian work ethic is you work to give. The Protestant work ethic is you work to gain for a person in the kingdom of god you work you definitely work okay so you do work but you work to meet your essential needs and the needs of your family and then to give to others beyond that paul makes the giving the main thing in this text which i think is amazing this next text Concerns giving money to the poor saints in Jerusalem, which all the Gentile churches that Paul planted did. And So listen to what he says. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. So if the willingness, if the willingness to give is there, it's acceptable according to what one actually has. Verse 13. Our desire is not that the others might be relieved of, while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be an equality. And he's talking about a financial equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they, the saints in Jerusalem, need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, And the one who gathered little did not have too little. That's 2 Corinthians 8, 12 to 15. You know, these are passages in Scripture that I think in the evangelical world are very often glossed over or ignored. Is that not true? Boy. All right, now (laughs) this next one. (laughs) Oh, oh, boy. Oh, what am I getting into here? Oh, Lord, help me here. Uh, Verse 25, this is 1 Corinthians 7. Now about unmarried women, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Is your marriage dissolved? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a single woman marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you. Okay. Yes, thank you, Paul. I think he was married once. What do you think, right? I mean, it is what it is, what it is. What are you going to do? 29, what I mean, what I'm, see, he even has to explain himself. What I mean, (laughs) brothers and sisters, (laughs) is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern or worry or anxiety. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit but a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord." Well, we're going to come back to 1 Corinthians 7. But I want to say that in the New Testament there is the entering into the kingdom and we talked about that there's both the crisis where you enter into it by faith and then there is the progress where you enter into the fullness of it then there is the experiencing of the king and then there is the preaching of the kingdom and my observation and again this is my personal observation it seems to me that most Christians and I I will use that term most Christians that's my observation I could be wrong but through my lens most Christians seek the same things the world does which is to make a lot of money to live in luxury to have a prestigious position a name in the world to acquire a lot of possessions To raise their children, to be successful by worldly standards, have a big income, money in the bank, a name, and lots of stuff. That's my observation. And even if I'm not correct and that's not most Christians, I'll tell you what, it's a lot of Christians, alright? And my question is, at what cost? How much stress? How many ulcers? How many health problems? And how much time and energy and passion lost to the kingdom of God, which is eternal. This is why the gospel of the kingdom is so disturbing. Because it cuts into the very things that we as human beings hold the dearest. Particularly when it gets into security. But Jesus was clear, the cares of this world choke out the word of the kingdom. And Paul has a lot to say about this in 1 Corinthians 7. I will say to you that it's difficult to read 1 Corinthians 7 without getting under the pile. So again, I'll go back to the agreement we made yesterday, do not get under the pile. But there's some things here that we really need to hear. All right, I have basically seven points to make about this passage and then Then I'm going to shift gears and go into doing some wrapping up and summarizing and bringing out some new points. Point one, because of the present crisis, Paul says you should remain as you are. Now, other translations use the term present distress, right? And scholars don't really understand what Paul means. I cannot say with 100% certainty that I do either, but most commentators and most Bible readers believe that Paul is talking about the difficulty of living in the days that precede the coming of Christ. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but from a scriptural perspective, the last days has been going on since Jesus ascended. Paul was living in the last days, we are living in the last days, all right? The last days is long from our perspective. The Lord, it's short. We're further into the last days than Paul was. And in the 21st century, even though we're so far removed from the first century, there's a lot of stress and distress in our world. Would you not agree with that? I think in some ways life is more stressful now than it was back then. Now, it was harder in many ways back then, but in terms of day-to-day stress, there's a lot of stress today. And my point here, and many scholars agree with me on this, is that Paul's words about the present distress apply just as much today as they did in the first century. So everything he says here, in light of the present distress, and yes, he even, he even talks about the time is short. Well, let me tell you something. Life is short. Those of you in this room who are 30 years old or younger, you're going to turn your head and you're going to be 50. It will go by so quick, your mind will boggle. It's short. And so my point here in this first I guess, lesson that I'm pulling out of this is that everything he says here applies to us. Without question. And it's consistent with the rest of the New Testament. Point two. Verse 29. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they do not. Those who are happy as if they were not. What's he saying here? He's saying this. From now on, you have no problems. You have nothing to be sad about. No one has done you wrong. Your car didn't break down. The IRS isn't asking you for your taxes this year. You don't live with a bunch of knuckleheads as roommates. Your husband or your wife isn't this or that. Your children aren't this or that. Your next door neighbor isn't such and such. Live as though you have no problems. You don't have the luxury of having a personal problem. Now, I don't think many of us, perhaps none of us in this room, are there yet. I know I am not. There are some days where I have no problem. But there are other days where I have plenty of problems but according to Paul this is territory that every Christian should have the privilege of living by and he's saying something that Jesus said and Peter said Peter said cast your cares upon him for he cares for you in other words the care the problem, the anxiety, is no longer yours. You've given it to the Lord. And Jesus said the same thing. You read it earlier today, I believe, Matthew 6. Don't worry about anything. If I am consumed with the cares of Jesus Christ, with His own worries, with His own concerns, with the things that obsess Him, but I don't have the luxury of having a problem myself. I'm giving that to the Lord. And sisters and brothers, this is part of the gospel of the kingdom. As we don't have worries anymore. We've given them to the Lord. We take upon ourselves His burden and His yoke. And that is territory we can seize. Even though that's probably not the reality right now. But I think this is a wonderful thing. The gospel of the kingdom does free us from worry and anxiety. And the more our security is in this world and the things of this world and the goods of this world, then guess what? The more worry and stress and anxiety you and I will have. And I just paraphrased what Jesus said in Matthew 6. All right, point three. Verse 30, the NIV says, those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. And now we're getting even closer to the gospel of the kingdom. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Now the New American Standard Bible puts it this way, those who buy as though they did not possess. To buy something but have the understanding and the attitude and the mindset that this doesn't belong to me. I don't own it. I'm a steward of it, perhaps, but I don't possess it. It's something I use, but it's not mine. This is revolutionary. It's, it's a way of looking at possessions You don't own it. You don't possess it. You buy as one who owns nothing. In fact, I'll take it a step further. The reality is, when you purchase something, in the kingdom of God, that belongs to the body of Christ. That makes sense of what Paul was saying in 2 Corinthians. We just read it, that there would be inequality. Well, those who have more, give to those who do not have, that there will be inequality. That's how the early Christians and, and the church in Jerusalem were able to live out of a common purse, Because they didn't see the things that they did own as being theirs. Listen to what he says again. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who buy as though they did not possess I want you, above everything else, to get the flavor of the kingdom of God. What an attitude, what what a lifestyle, what a way of viewing the world the early Christians had. Point four, verse 31. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. That's the NIV. Those who Use the things of this world. Use. Use the things of this world. But not be engrossed in them. Not be consumed by them. Not be ensnarled by them or enchained by them. And the New American Standard puts it this way. Those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. They used it, but they didn't make full use of it to the point where they were engrossed by it. And then the New Living Translation puts it this way, those who use the things of the world should not become attached to them. So it's one thing to use something in this world, something even in the world system, but not be attached to it, not be engrossed by it, not be enslaved to it, all right? And I I think this is an important distinction. that every brother and sister in this room and listening to this recording can use the things of the world, but without being attached and engrossed and enchained by them, not making full use of it. I'll give you an illustration. I was once part of the educational system. I was a public school teacher for 16 years. And there's one person in this room that can testify to that by personal experience. I have a student in this room way, way, way back in those days. It was a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. (laughs) And she's all grown up now. But I was in the educational system, and as I said yesterday, without flinching, the educational system is part of the world system. And I used it, I used my position as a teacher as an instrument, but I never made full use of it i was not invested in the educational system i wasn't invested in the philosophy of it and there was no ceiling to my profession i could have been a department head if i wanted to i could have tried to win teacher of the year if i wanted to then you know after that you go up and you become vice principal then you can become principal school board and then you go on from there that's making full use of it And if I did any of those things, I would have sold my soul to the educational system. Do you understand? But I used it as an instrument for a season, and I had plenty of time for the kingdom of God, especially summers, and lots and lots of days off, (laughs) and uh, teacher work days, and all that. The Lord used me in that school. My erstwhile student here came to the Lord through, through my ministry in those days as a teacher. I was the head of a Christian club and uh, we led people to the Lord and we baptized them and, and I did some subversive things. I had meetings in my home. The students would come and then word spread and other students from other schools came and then we had youth pastors coming and it was pretty remarkable. I never got in trouble. Now, of course, it was in Florida, so if it was in up north, it, it may have been a different story. But my point is, I used my position in the educational system as an instrument, but I never made full use of it. And Paul is saying, you can use the things of the world, but don't be attached and engrossed and enchained by them. Let me put it to you this way. There's a difference between making a living and becoming worldly through your profession. I'm going to run that by again. There's a difference between making a living. The gospel of the kingdom does call us to work. Paul worked with his hands. He was a leather maker. That's more accurate than tent maker. He he was a leather worker. There's a difference between making a living and becoming worldly through your profession. And here's one of the differences that I think brings it out in bold relief. If you have moved out of labor into management, then you have moved into making full use of the world. You have moved into a position where you're probably engrossed in the world. Why? Because labor can only demand of you about eight hours a day and management demands your entire soul yes yes every person i've ever met who had a management position they were drained their life was given to that profession i've had relatives who were in supervisory management kind of positions some of them it broke their health others thankfully got out of it but, you know, in the, in the world's eyes, that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to climb the ladder and get to the top, right? But sisters and brothers, that is not the value of the kingdom of God. Yes. So Paul says, use the things of this world, but don't make full use of them. Don't be attached to them. Don't be ensnarled by them. Be free from worldly care and ambition. That's a wonderful privilege to live by. Again, I marvel at what the brothers of the first century did, what the sisters did. They gave their all to the Lord. And I would encourage you in Paul's words in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that we read, when it comes to the world that you would live a quiet and simple life. When it comes to the world. All right, point five, verse 31. For the form of this world is passing away. The pattern of this world is passing away. Sisters and brothers, this world system is passing away. It's passing away. It's already been crucified on the cross. And it is in the process of passing away. It's doomed. Let it pass. Don't try to help it survive. This is the second law of thermodynamics. The world is passing away. Don't buy stock in the world. I'm using that as a metaphor. Don't buy stock in the world because it's passing away. Use it as an instrument just enough to get by and give your life, your soul, your heart to the kingdom of God. Point six, this is verse 32. And here I get out on a limb and begin sawing hard. (laughs) Actually, I'm just reading Paul, so... If you have an issue, your quarrel is with Mr. Paul of Tarsus. Point six, this is verse 32. An unmarried man can spend his time doing the Lord's work and thinking how to please him. I'm reading from the uh, New Living Translation, so it's a little different than what we read. An unmarried man can spend his time doing the Lord's work and thinking how to please him, but a married man has to think about his earthly responsibilities, and how to please his wife. His interests are divided. In the same way, a woman who is no longer married or has never been married can be devoted to the Lord and holy in body and in spirit. But a married woman has to think about her earthly responsibilities and how to please her husband. All right, now here's Paul's gospel when it comes to this issue of marriage and singleness. If it is possible for you to remain single... That means celibate. Now we live in a day where it's fashionable to be single, but then live with your boyfriend or girlfriend as if you're married, right? This is very popular among younger people in our generation, even among Christians. They're having sexual relationship, they're having relations, and they're not married, and they're living like they're married. Sisters and brothers, the New Testament condemns that. It does. God has a view of marriage. Vows in front of people, witnesses. Paul said in 1 Timothy 4 that to forbid people to marry is a doctrine of demons. That's what he said. I mean, we know where all that comes from. It's, it's easier not to be committed. But this is not the way of the kingdom of God. But according to Paul's gospel... If it's possible for you to remain single you have that gift where you do not need to have a spouse Paul actually calls it a gift Jesus calls it a gift the gift of celibacy you can live undistracted by physical desires and you don't have to have a spouse according to Paul you should remain single why because You can please the Lord and live for the Lord undistracted. You don't have the responsibility of caring for a spouse wherein, according to Paul, your interests are divided. I've met a number of people who had that gift and some people married anyway. Even though they had the gift of celibacy, they married. And in most of those cases, they were miserable. I've known people who had the gift of celibacy and they never married. And these are people who are no longer with us, and some of them are very old now. And they gave their whole life to the kingdom of God, and it was a beautiful thing to see. Now, I personally don't have that gift, and many of you in this room don't have that gift. But if you have that gift, that's something to bring before the Lord in light of what Paul is saying. And Paul also made the comment, you will be spared a lot of trouble. And I'm not going to dare comment on what he's talking about. (laughs) But but if you're married, I mean, most people laughing are married because it's not easy to be married. And if you don't have the gift of celibacy, it's not easy to be single. And so Paul says, hey, if you're going to burn, you should marry instead. So in other words, a person who has the gift of celibacy and marries is going to be distracted. But a person who doesn't have the gift of celibacy and tries to be single is going to be distracted too, in another way. His whole concern here is that the loyalty of the brothers and sisters in Corinth is not divided. That their full attention is given to Christ as much as it is possible. And you know, I read this passage and I'm thinking to myself, this is kind of a slam It's not good news for people who are married, because he's basically saying, look, sorry about this, but if you're married, you're gonna be worldly to some degree, because you have to care for your spouse. And the thing that kind of evens or balances this out or makes me have more hope is that our brother Simon Peter pulled it off. He was able to give his whole to the kingdom of God and be married at the same time. And once again, I say God bless Mrs. Barjona. She must have been some remarkable woman to let him travel and actually travel with him. You know what I mean? This is interesting, just to kind of give you some first century context. Jewish men usually married at the age of 20 in the first century, and Jewish women usually married between the ages of 13 and 17 in the first century very young all right and they didn't live all that long either compared to way people live today Greek men usually married at age 30 and Greek women usually married at around 18. By the way there's a joke that goes something like this marriage is two ticks looking for a dog only to find another tick (laughs) <laughs> there's actually a lot of truth to that in many cases but the point is both marriage and singleness have their joys and the, both have their profound challenges but in the kingdom of God there are those who have that gift of celibacy and I will just say to you I'll stand with my brother Paul if you have that gift you may want to give some considerable prayerful attention to giving your whole life to being undivided and totally devoted in your devotion to Jesus Christ. It is a beautiful, powerful, incredible thing. And Paul encourages it. And there's so much pressure today in the Christian community to get every single person married. And so I feel for the people who who do have that gift, and maybe they're actually thinking to follow the Lord single the rest of their life, who uh, are being tormented by this pressure. So just remember the words of Paul here when it comes to that issue. All right, point seven. Paul wraps up the text in 1 Corinthians 7 saying in verse 32, I would like you to be free from concern or worry or anxiety. The New Living Translation says, I want you to be free from the concerns of this life. The ESV says, I want you to be free from anxieties. He basically says it a different way in verse 35. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. That you may live in undivided devotion to the Lord. Or the New Living Translation says that you would serve the Lord the best with as few distractions as possible. So his whole point here is that I want those of you in Corinth who are part of the kingdom of God to live as free from worry and anxiety and concern as possible, that your loyalties not be divided, and that you give your whole life to Jesus Christ wherever he has called you. And that as much as possible you be free from distraction. And what he's really doing, he's echoing Jesus in Mark 4 where the Lord said, The cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the lust of other things enter in and choke the word of the kingdom. And this is sort of a commentary on that text from Paul now let me give you the gospel of the kingdom from paul even clearer i just want you to listen to it just listen to it with your ears and your spirit but whatever were gains to me i now consider loss for the sake of christ what is more i consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing christ jesus my lord For whose sake I have lost all things and consider them garbage, that I might gain Christ. I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of His resurrection. I want to participate in His sufferings, becoming more like Him, even in His death. Not that I have already obtained all of this or have arrived at my goal, but I press on. To take hold of that which Jesus Christ has taken hold of me and that is the gospel of the kingdom the loss of all things to gain Christ to know Christ and to be in his conscious presence and Paul is echoing the same thing that Jesus said and that Simon Peter said it's all the same message So now I kinda wanna wrap it all together and bring out a few new thoughts as I do. The Gospel of John the Baptist was get out of the world system, cut all your ties to this world off because the kingdom is coming soon, the kingdom will be here soon, so get ready and be unattached. The Gospel of Jesus Christ was, and I mean the Gospel of the kingdom, I am here. The kingdom is here. The king is here. Follow me. Forsake everything else. Follow me and get in my presence because I'm here and so is my kingdom. And then the Gospel of Simon Peter and the Gospel of Paul was leave everything, forsake everything to gain the privilege of gaining Christ. Where? Among his own people in his own people. Why did Paul forsake everything? Why did he suffer the loss of everything? It was because of that magnificent obsession that caught his soul. And I believe that Paul wanted to be so uncluttered, so undistracted for his Lord that even if there was a chance that his heart would go towards something else or chase something else, he wanted to cut that off so that he would not have anything any obstacle in the way to keep him from knowing Christ and living in his presence. And he didn't do it out of religious duty and he didn't do it out of guilt and he didn't do it out of condemnation and he didn't do it out of shame and he didn't do it out of fear. He did it because of the vision of Christ and his glory that he saw on the Damascus road and that vision just unfolded for him more and more. Let me make a few comparisons between these four men. John the Baptist met Jesus Christ physically. He baptized him in the Jordan. He saw him. He looked straight at him in the flesh. Simon Peter knew Jesus Christ in the flesh for three and a half years. He knew him physically. But Paul Tarsus was different. Think about it. Except for one fleeting moment on the road to Damascus, Paul of Tarsus never laid eyes on Jesus Christ. He never saw Him physically. The only person the Gentile world would ever gain Christ from was from a man who never met Jesus physically, never saw Him physically, never knew Him physically. And yet, Paul knew Christ. He knew the risen Christ. He knew the ascended Christ. What's my point? Thank God for Paul because we're in the same situation. And we can live out and obey the gospel of the kingdom because Paul, who'd never seen the physical Christ, did. And we have never seen the physical Christ either. So we can follow that example. All right, now, I want to give you some practical dimensions to this. I'll call these discipleship exercises. This is kind of the takeaway, the hands-on, fleshing out exercises that sisters and brothers, if it's in your heart to do it, then go for it. Again, I come back to what I said yesterday. I'm inviting you on a journey that I myself am on. If you want to go on that journey with me, then by all means, I'd love to have you. If not, that's your prerogative. But these are things that I'm actively doing. Some of these things I have done already. Some of them I'm in the process of doing. I call them discipleship exercises. Okay, so number one. Here's the background to number one before I give you the actual exercise. I want to remind you what John the Baptist said in Luke 3. Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Something that goes along with that is when Zacchaeus met Jesus Christ, his response was, I'm going to give away half of my possessions. And the Lord responded gladly and said, salvation has come to this house. It was an evidence that Zacchaeus' heart had been turned. Now, well, let me preface this. And I wish we weren't living in this time, but we're living in this time. So I have to say this, so I don't want you to get confused. There is a trend today in the world, in the world system called minimalism they are best-selling books on it. And the whole thing is you want to get rid of all the excessive stuff, and you want to simplify, and you want to downsize, and you want to minimize because it makes you happier. And sisters and brothers, people in the world who don't know Jesus Christ are chasing this. And it's just another consumer choice decluttering downsizing minimalizing it's the new buying it's the new social status symbol it's the new economic status symbol and it's just as worldly as having a lot of wealth because of the motivation so what I'm talking about is not minimalizing in that sense at all but obedience to the gospel of the kingdom does demand us to rethink our relationship to money and possessions and so here's the first discipleship exercise as i'm speaking here my wife and i are going through our home room by room closet by closet drawer by drawer and if something we own is not being actively used or it's excessive, he who has two shirts should give to the one who has none. If it's not being used or it's excessive, then we're giving it to the poor or we're selling it and giving the money to the poor. That's one of the things we're doing. Why? For the kingdom of God. We don't want to be attached to this world's goods. And we certainly want to be generous with what God has given us. And we're very conscious of the fact that we don't own anything. It belongs to the body of Christ. Mm -hmm. John Chrysostom, a Greek church father who lived in the fourth century, said this, Not to enable the poor to share in our goods is to steal from them and deprive them of life. The goods we possess are not ours, but theirs." And Basil, the great church father, he was a Greek church father as well, who lived in the fourth century, said, "'When someone steals another's clothes, "'we call them a thief. "'Should we not give the same name "'to the one who could clothe the naked and does not? The bread in your cupboard belongs to the hungry. The coat unused in your closet belongs to the one who needs it. The shoes rotting in your closet belong to the one who has no shoes. The money which you hoard up belongs to the poor. And Dorothy Day said, if you have two coats, you have stolen one from the poor. This is an exercise that I invite you to embrace if it's in your heart to do so. The gospel of the kingdom calls us to rethink our relationship to money and possessions. All right, here's exercise two. The background. In Matthew 6, Jesus said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Uh, Notice the words, do not store up treasure on earth now some christians barely get by they live paycheck to paycheck and they really struggle with income enough to meet their own needs and expenses many people have had to well let's put it this way some of the people who aren't here couldn't afford to be here i want to say this to those of you listening to this whether you're in this room or you um, are hearing the recording. I really believe that if you and if you're married, you and your spouse come before the Lord and say, Lord, we want you to increase our income or to give us a stream of revenue so that we can meet our essential needs and have enough to give to others and have enough to spend on your kingdom, that the Lord will answer that prayer. I really believe that. But the motive is not so I can get more stuff. The motive is so I can meet my needs and say go to a conference like this or help someone who is in need. I believe the Lord will respond to that prayer. So brother, sister, if that's you, I challenge you. That's my exercise for you is to make a deliberate, decisive prayer before the Lord to increase your income or give you a new stream so that you can meet your own needs and have more excess to give to others and to spend on kingdom activity and kingdom work but at the same time putting in practice what jesus said do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth those christians who have large sums of money in their bank accounts or cds or stocks and bonds and there's no purpose for it it's just there accumulating it's not a sign to go somewhere but I would encourage you to look at that and ask the Lord what he would have you do with it that's what my wife and I are doing we're looking at that we don't want to be people who fall into what Paul wrote teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money there's a real pull to put your security and money Everyone has to find that line in their own spirit and heart before God as to how we are to use our money. That's what I'm exhorting you to do in the Lord for the kingdom of God is what does He want you to do with it if you're in that position? I mean, there are people and there are Christians who are hoarding wealth. Lots of it. And I would admonish you... (laughs) if that's you listening to this recording, to bring that to the Lord in light of the gospel of the kingdom. Yes. Exercise three, get rid of the idols. And I talk more about this in one of the other messages that's to come in the master class, but I'll just touch on it. Idols are those things that are dear to your heart and which compete with Jesus Christ. Only the Lord, only the Holy Spirit can put his finger on what is an idol in your life. And you don't have to ask somebody else. You'll know if it's an idol. And you want to know one of the best ways to detach from an idol? Destroy it or give it away. Radical generosity is one of the greatest tools in our arsenal to break with our love of possessions if that is operating in our heart and I have practiced this myself and I can tell you it might be scary at first but it's very freeing break the idols in your heart and we need the Lord's mercy everything I'm saying I trust you understand has the presupposition behind it that God is your life and your strength the Lord is the one who's going to enable us to carry any of this out it's beyond us and our own power. For, end the unequal yokes. End the unequal yokes. Boy, Jesus talked a lot about this. He talked a lot about severing relationships. Over the kingdom of God. For the kingdom of God. Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians 6. This could be a platonic relationship that you have with someone, but they are dragging you back to the world or worldly thinking. It could be a relationship that's more important to you than the Lord is. It could be a romantic relationship that's an unequal yoke. That person is not for the kingdom of God, and you are. It could be a business partnership. I don't know. Any relationship sisters and brothers, bring that before the Lord. This is part of responding to the gospel of the kingdom. Five, be ready for an opportunity to literally leave all and follow Jesus Christ. Be ready for an opportunity. Now, let me explain this. Perhaps, someday, I am not prophesying or predicting, although I would love to see this. Perhaps someday there will be a new kingdom community born on this earth. Kind of like what you saw in Jerusalem. A new work of God. And perhaps you will have an opportunity. You will be given the invitation to sell your house, quit your job. And relocate to be part of that kingdom community that Jerusalem so to speak now I've done this twice in my life I have sold my house quit my job and relocated to be part of a kingdom community but I want you to know every time I did it I did it making sure I had a job where I was relocating to I have watched people do this what I'm saying to you and it was a disaster because they quit their job hoping that they would find another job where they were relocating. And many, in many cases, they couldn't do it. Some unhealthy things came out of that. Many of them ended up moving back and kind of bitter about it. If you were ever given this opportunity, my word of advice would be make sure your spouse is on board if you're married and make sure you have a job. And make sure at least you visit the place first before you move. I've seen people move sight unseen and it was a disaster as well. Right now in July of 2017, there is no community of believers. There is no group, but I myself would recommend anybody to do that for. To quit your job and leave and move. Now that's not a criticism of any group. No, there's many groups out there on the planet today who are following the Lord. Many churches fellowships, etc. But I don't know of any that I would say confidently that you should relocate to. But sisters and brothers, I believe there will be a time where there will be such a group. There has been in the past. But right now as I speak, there is not. But the question I have for you is, are you willing if such an opportunity came up? Would you be willing? The first use of the word kingdom in the Bible as it relates to God's kingdom is in Exodus 19. And the phrase is, I, the Lord, I'm paraphrasing, am going to have a kingdom of priests. He was talking about his original intention for Israel. That new nation that he was creating, the one he would inherit, the one that would be his, the one that would be his kingdom on the earth. He says, I am going to have a kingdom of priests. What is a priest? A priest is someone who lives in the presence of God. That's a priest, they stand in God's presence. God's intention was for all of Israel to be priests, but then there was an incident that happened and only the Levites stood for the Lord and they were the ones that were given the priesthood. And what did they inherit? They inherited the Lord Himself. He was their inheritance. And the Levites and Aaron's sons, they stood in God's presence. And as I said before, Israel was tribal. It wasn't part of fallen human civilization. It was its own way of life. And God's call for it was to live in His presence, His conscious presence. Then Jesus comes along, and He calls twelve. He's reconstituting Israel. And what are they doing? They're living in the presence of God. They're living in the presence of Christ. They are the priests. They are a little tiny kingdom of priests. Okay? they are the new israel. Yes. And then Peter and the 12 watch the birth of this new kingdom community in the city of Jerusalem. The ecclesia of God is born on the day of Pentecost, and what's happening? The Jews, and they're all Jews now, are living in the presence of God. The Holy Spirit falls. God's presence is there. They are His temple in the earth. They are the kingdom of priests. But now we come to why Paul of Tarsus had the highest gospel of all. Paul's gospel of the kingdom was higher than Peter's and John the Baptist's because he established Kingdom communities, all over the Gentile world. And those kingdom communities were not made up of Jews only. They were multiracial, multicultural, multi-ethnic, and they included every race on the planet, and they all lived as one people and as one family. And the two races that had the most hostility against one another for thousands of years. The Jew and the Gentile, the hatred, the vitriol, the prejudice, the racism was so deep and so strong that when a Jew said the word Gentile, he would spit it. And in this community of people who named the name of Jesus Christ, In that community, those Jews and those Gentiles no longer had a wall of division. And they no longer saw themselves as being distinct or separate or different. They saw themselves as flesh and blood. And they were one body, one family, one people, one temple. And that was the kingdom of God come to earth in flesh. Praise the Lord. And right now, we live in a world that's so politically charged that people are being taught to look to the government and the political system to break down the racial divide And break down the oppressiveness and the injustice. And sisters and brothers, it's not going to happen. It will always be with us. The only hope is the kingdom of God on this earth. The only hope is those of us who have Christ. Because the wall of partition between all races has been destroyed by the cross. And so as I look out here in this small group of believers. The one thing that thrills me the most. Is the diversity that I see here it is the hope of the coming kingdom and that's the work of God's kingdom that came from the hand of Paul Atarsis, Yes. all throughout the Gentile world sisters and brothers may we stop pledging allegiance to the flags of this world and giving our hearts and souls to the political systems and parties who promise To end all of the evil and wickedness and sin and racism and oppression and violence. Because sisters and brothers, it's all part of the same world system. The root is the same. All of the ills that come from the fallen nature are part of that system that is seeking to solve it. And so I come back to the point. It's not to make the world a better place. Yes, we are salt and light. And the world can't help but respond if we are being the kingdom of God on earth and the people of the kingdom. There will be an influence. But it's not about making it a better place. It's about being the better place in the fallen world. And that's what the Lord's will is. And that's the power of the gospel of the kingdom and that's worth living and dying for and that's worth forsaking all things for and that's the magnificent obsession that captured paul of tarsus one of the central points of the eternal purpose in ephesians 3 is the one body the one new creation there's no jew there's no gentile there's no slave or free there's no man or woman there's no rich or poor but we are one body on this earth And I love how the early Christians called themselves the third race, the new race. We're not Jew. We're not Gentile. We're ecclesia. We're something from heaven. That's awesome. Yes, Yes. Praise the Lord. Well, I think that's an appropriate place to end it. If you want to follow up with this conference, then... I would suggest you read my book From Eternity to Here. If you have read it already, if you might want to read it again before the new book on the Kingdom of God comes out next year, From Eternity to Here, because it will set you up for the other messages that you have not yet heard in the master class that are coming after these conference messages are released. And I will just say this to you, sisters and brothers, that may God give us mercy and grace to lay down forsake and cut all ties to the world and let's jump off a cliff together and start moving into his kingdom and the life of the kingdom. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Insurgents Podcast and give it a five-star review on iTunes. This will help others find it. Also, you can join Frank's unfiltered email list at frankviola.org and receive encouragement, challenges, and insights connected to the gospel of the kingdom. Remember, the insurgence has begun. Don't miss it.